where we're at this morning. Is everyone well? Good, good. Is it good to be in the house of the Lord? Amen, good. Well, let me depress you now. Well, it's not really depressing. I mean, for Christians, we know what is to come. We have studied it. I'm sure you have. But it is sad for those who aren't ready. For those who aren't prepared. And so we, here we are on a Sunday morning ready to read what God has in store for the world. And because of his mercy and grace upon us as born-again believers, we will be spared this. Amen? But it is coming. It is coming. Let's just have a look at a little bit of context because the way it begins in Revelation chapter 8, verse 1, it talks about a seal. Just if you're there with me, when the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven. So I need to recap the last couple of chapters because we can't really start at the seventh seal and it might not have been here previously. So let's do a bit of recap. Let's just go back a little so we can understand the process of these seals. Let's go back to chapter 6 and highlight some of the things that have happened. I'm certainly not going to be going over them again, just to highlight them. Verse 1 of chapter 6 says, Then I saw when the Lamb broke one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying as with a voice of thunder, Come. Now this seal, this, this scroll, is the one that the Lamb of God took out of his father's hand. The only one worthy to take the scroll. The only one worthy to open the scroll. In fact, John was crying there for a little while because no one could be found to open this scroll. The deeds of the earth. The deeds of the universe. There was only one worthy and that was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The, the Lamb of God that we've been talking about here this morning, the Lamb of God that we've been singing about, the one who came as a babe and was rightly pointed out by Jordan that came to die, but not only came to die, but to rise again. And not only to rise again, but to come again. And, and Pastor read that in one, chat, in one little section of, of Hebrews. And so the Lamb of God took this scroll from his father, a scroll rolled up and sealed at different intervals and we know those intervals to be seven intervals. And as it's being unrolled, it's being unsealed one at a time. And as this happens, each one of the four living creatures, because there's four living creatures, announces the Lord's judgment upon the earth. A judgment relative to the tribulation period that we've been talking about. So the first seal opened in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. In this first seal, the revelation was of the Antichrist as a white horseman. The Antichrist coming into the world scene. He comes in power, he comes in importance, and he comes in peace. We're going to be seeing more of him later as we go through this prophecy, through this, this book. Then we have 
the second seal was opened by the Lamb, by the, uh, the Lamb of God and here we have a red horse symbolising the coming of war upon the earth and we'll see that explained in chapter 16. Then in verses 5 to 6, the third seal is opened. This is the advent of famine, the advent of economic collapse symbolised by a black horse. We see that beginning today as we go through chapter 8. And the Lamb opens the fourth seal, being the pale horse, which is the death of multitudes and multitudes of people. In fact, we're told that a quarter of the population will either be killed by sword or by famine or by plague or by wild beasts. At this present day, if anyone can really count, that would be about 1.6 billion people. This happens, I believe, over the last half of the tribulation called the Great Tribulation. Then seal number five is opened in verse nine, revealing a group of believers. The scripture says these believers who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. So during this time, we have some martyrs being slain. And they're slain not because of anything other than the, the word of God standing on the truth of the word, standing on the testimony of Jesus Christ. And so they were killed. Seal number six is starting at verse 12, the advent of universal catastrophe. This is just an overview of what we'll start seeing. There was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair. The whole moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. The topography of the earth is changed. The first six seals are opened and we looked at that and I'm sure there's a record of it somewhere of me speaking on these. But there are seven seals. But the seventh doesn't open until chapter 8, which we just read in verse 1. So what happened in chapter 7? It's a kind of interlude. It's a kind of interlude that we, meet, we have met two groups of people. One group we met was 144,000 Jews. Another group that we met was a great multitude in white robes. And at the time, we, well, I don't know how long ago now, but the great, we talked about the great multitude being in white robes as a vision of John seeing those who have been uh, saved out of the tribulation. 144,000 were the Jews who came to believe in Jesus Christ as Messiah during this time. We're told that they are sealed. And then we went further into the scriptures and we found out that the seal was the name of God and of the Lamb on them. The idea of the seal was to protect them so they could minister and evangelize the world. 
an interlude where we met a couple of groups of people. But now we reach the opening of the seventh seal. But unlike the other seals that we've already opened, instead of one judgment from God for each seal, as we open this seventh seal, we're going to see seven more judgments, seven trumpet judgments. So the seventh seal opens seven more. And so now we're going to see a series of trumpets, trumpet judgments. And like the seals, each trumpet is an introduction of some kind of judgment that comes upon the earth. Chapter 8, verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now up to this point, John has heard a great deal of noise in heaven. Coming from God's throne, there were sounds and peals of thunder we saw in chapter 4. The four living creatures were saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The 24 elders were singing praises. We have a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and break its seals? We have four living creatures. We have 24 elders joining in song. A numerable host of angels join in with them and then finally all of creation joins in praising God. (coughs) So we have all this noise, we have all this worship going on and the Lamb opens the seventh seal and there's complete silence in heaven for half an hour. Complete silence for half an hour. We can't even do a minute silence without wanting to speak or say something. 30 minutes of silence. You could hear a pin drop on the glassy sea surrounding the throne. I'm sure John could hear his heart beating. What's this silence all about? What is this silence? Well, to put it simply, the calm before the storm. 30 minutes. You just try sitting there for 30 minutes in complete silence. Even when I'm asleep, there's no silence. (laughs) We have the silence of foreboding. The silence of intense expectation the silence of awe at what God is about to do everyone is silent everyone is reduced to silence in the anticipation of the grim reality of the destruction written on the scroll the hour of God's final judgment on an unbelieving world has come The hour when the saints will be vindicated has come. The hour that Satan will be vanquished and Christ exalted has come. 
the greatest event since the fall is about to take place and all heaven is seen waiting in suspenseful expectancy. Habakkuk 2.20 wrote, The Lord is in his temple. Let all the earth keep silent before him. Silence. This awesome silence is not followed directly by the judgments to come. Verse 2 says, And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. So the, the preparation is there. The trumpets have been given to the angels. Everything is silent. <coughs> but a, a special angel comes into, into the fore. All is in readiness. The chapter, uh, verse 3 says, Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer and much incense was given to him so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. So John is describing this scene in heaven. An eighth angel standing before the altar with a golden censer, a golden fire pan, if you like. So what is this all about? Well, we have to go back to the Old Testament to fully understand what's happening here. You see, the priests would daily, twice daily actually, morning and evening, take hot, fiery coals from the bronze and old, brazen altar, that's where the sacrifices <coughs> excuse me, were offered, and they would put it in a golden censer and they would transport that or take that into the holy place to the incense altar. Now the holy place is not the holy of holies, the holy place is just outside the, the massive big curtain which behind was the holy of holies. So just before that big curtain, and if you went through, our group went through kings, you you would understand and see the picture of it there. And so the priest would take it in, take the incense, uh, the uh, coals in, and he would take it to the, to the altar in the hot place of the holy and he would ignite the incense. And as that incense rose toward heaven, symbolic of the prayers of the saints, the priest would be praying. There's a New Testament illustration of this and it comes from the story of Zacharias. You may know Zacharias as the father of John the Baptist and an angel came to Zacharias <coughs> and I'll just read Luke chapter 1 verses 8 to 10. Now it happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by Lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And, while, and the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. And the angel of the Lord met Zacharias there to tell him about his son. But Zacharias burned incense symbolizing the ascending of prayers to God. And that's what's happening here with this eighth angel. 
before anything happens. Why? We have to ask the question, why? Why is the, the Old Testament picture of the prayers of the people going up to God the Father being seen here? Well, the only reason I could come up to is I looked at it and looked at it and went back to the Old Testament was because somehow God's judgment and his people's prayers are connected. God's judgment and his people's prayers are connected. And as I thought about it, I thought for centuries God's people have been praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And now those prayers are going to be answered. In fact, this is a common plea of David in the Psalms. They're called precatory Psalms, imprecatory Psalms. I'll just read a couple. Psalm 7, 6. Arise, O Lord, in your anger. Lift up yourself against the rage of my adversaries and arouse yourself for me. You have appointed judgment. Let the assembly of the peoples encompass you and over them return on high. The Lord judges the peoples. Vindicate me. O Lord, according to my righteousness, righteousness and my integrity that is in me. O let the evil of the wicked come to an end, but establish the righteous. For the righteous God tries the hearts and minds. My shield is with God who saves the upright in heart. God is a righteous God a righteous judge and a God who has indignation every day. Psalm 26, just one verse or two verses. Vindicate me, O Lord, for I have walked in my integrity and I have trusted in the Lord without wavering. Examine me, O Lord, and try me. Test my mind and my heart. You see, these imprecatory psalms, they're not expressions of selfish personal vengeance, what they are is cries out to God to uphold his holy law and vindicate his people. Isn't this how you pray at times? Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. <coughs> and it appears from here in Revelation 8 that the prayers of God's people are involved in the judgment that God sends from heaven to earth. And it's a picture that also reminds me that our prayers are recorded in heaven. They are heard. They are known. They are received. Sometimes you might feel like your prayers of thy will be done, Lord, are not really heard. But they are. And they're being recorded in heaven and they rise like a sweet fragrance before the Lord when the time is right. And in this scene, the angel puts the incense on the altar, presenting the prayers of the saints before God, and then this angel reacts differently than we may have thought, because verse 5 says, Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire of the altar and threw it to earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. The prayers gone up to God, but then the angel hurls them to the earth. 
You think, well, I wonder what that's all about. Well, we'd have to do a study on Ezekiel 10. When the Lord left the temple in Ezekiel 10, what he did was he scattered coals over Jerusalem as he departed. It symbolised God's judgment upon Jerusalem as he left the temple. The angel is doing the same thing. The act of throwing the censer to earth reveals that God's judgment will come in direct response to the prayers that were in, um, in that, uh, that bowl as he threw them down to earth. There was a cacophony of peals of thunder and sounds that, that the thunder and the lightning that shook the windows. The silence is broken. I wonder if we should be thinking more clearly on what we are to pray for. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That the silence is broken, that 30 minutes of silence plus the silence as the prayers were offered up. The seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them, as verse 6 says storm is about to begin all is in readiness and then verse 7 says the first sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood and they were thrown to the earth and a third of the earth was burnt up a third of the trees were burned up and all the green grass were burned up now I'm not going to spend a lot of time examining each catastrophe that's let loose the reason is because if I spent time looking at them in particular and trying to explain them, we'd miss the point of God's judgment. We'd miss it completely because we're too tied up on what could that mean? How could that be? You see, there's book after book that tries to explain how each of these judgments will take place. How are they going to look like? For instance, just cast down to verse 8. The second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. And then some of the commentators spend a whole chapter on what this great mountain is. That it must be a meteor. Surely it's got to be a meteor. But how does a meteor turn blood, uh, water into blood? It must, be, must have had some chemical on it that, that did this. And they missed the whole point of what's happening. What is the point? Maybe I should tell you what the point is so we don't miss it. Well, to find out what the point is, we have to go back to the Old Testament when something like this had happened previously but in a smaller version. What do you think that was? Something like this in a smaller version. Exodus, the ten plagues. And like here in Revelation, when people read about the ten plagues, they always try and explain the ten plagues by natural means. They don't see them as miracles from God and say those missed the point as well of what the plagues were all about. So what were the, the point of the plagues? Let's turn to Exodus chapter 9, verse 13. You might like to turn there with me. Exodus 
chapter 9. Exodus 9.13 Then the Lord said to Moses, Rise up early in the morning and stand before Pharaoh and say to him, Thus says the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, Let my people go that they may serve me. For this time I will send all my plagues on you and your servants and your people so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had put forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you would have then been cut off from the earth. But indeed, for this reason, I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. Still, you exalt yourself against my people by not letting them go. What was the point of the plagues? Well, the fact is the Lord himself says, I could have just wiped you off. Don't worry about ten plagues. I could have done it with one plague. Got rid of you all in one go. But verse 16, but I kept you for this reason. I have allowed you to remain so that in order to show you my power, in order to proclaim my name through all the earth. That was the reason for the plagues. Certainly his people let his people go. But as I said, the Lord could have wiped them off the face of the earth and the people would have gone. But so it here is in Revelation. If God wanted to, he could have just wiped out everyone off the earth with the single wipe of his hand. And you must, we all must bear this in mind because when we read through Revelation chapter 8, we're going to see, as you're seeing with the first trumpets, a third of the earth, a third of the trees, a third of the grass, a third of the sea, a third of the creatures in the sea, a third of the ships, a third of the rivers, a third of the springs, a third of the sun, a third of the moon, a third of the stars. Why a third? Why not just wipe them out? Exodus 9.16 But indeed for this reason I have allowed you to remain in order to show you my power and in order to proclaim my name throughout all the earth. You see these trumpet judgments are really a statement of God's mercy. Trumpet judgments are a state of God's mercy. Yes, God's wrath is very present and horrible and ugly things are going to happen and we're going to read about them but the Lord could have decided in one fell swoop to wipe them off the face of the earth, but in his grace and in his mercy, mercy, he restrains himself before bringing to full force his judgment upon the earth so that he would show them his power and to show them and give them time. You see, this tribulation is God's attempt to rouse a sleeping, spiritually dead world and a dead nation of Israel. And it's by his mercy it's only a third. It'd still be by his mercy if half the people died. It'd still be by his mercy if two-thirds of the people died. God is giving a preemptive warning to those on this earth during the tribulation. 
But more importantly for us, he's giving you and I a preemptive warning now of what's going to happen. Verse 7, the first sounded and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. They were thrown to the earth and a third of the earth was burned up. A third of the trees were burned and all the green grass. Hail and fire mixed with blood reminds us of the seventh, seventh plague that God set against Egypt. The prophet Joel also said blood and fire were in the last days. And so we don't get caught straining out a gnat but swallowing a camel. This is a supernatural judgment. It is not necessary to explain how hail and fire and blood become mingled. The people that it was falling on didn't stop and wonder, I wonder why that's happening. I wonder what natural phenomenon that caused that to happen. It doesn't matter, it's supernatural. Don't try and explain it. You'll lose the point of the fact that a third is only destroyed. You see, what's what I can tell you with certainty? I can't tell you with certainty how it happens, but I can tell you with certainty that the target is green vegetation, the trees and all the grass. I'm sure you can even imagine how this would affect the balance of nature, how it would affect the balance of food supply, how it would destroy pasture lands, how it would devastate the, the agricultural industries, how it would start to cause a famine. Verse 8, the second angel sounded and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died and a third of the ships were destroyed. Turning water into blood reminds us of the first Egyptian plague. But what was this something like a great mountain? I don't know. But what I do know is it resulted in a third part of the salt water turning to blood a third part of all marine life dying, I can't even imagine the smell that that would cause, a third of the ships destroyed on the ocean, this will be an ecological and an economic disaster of unprecedented proportions. But don't get caught on how. Verse 10, the third angel sounded and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on, its, on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood. And a third of the waters became Wormwood. And many men died from the waters because they were made bitter. So God's wrath reaches inland, touches the rivers and the springs of water, making the fresh water taste like Wormwood. Just a, a word that means bitter. Again, this is... a an event that is divinely controlled. Don't try and limit this event by the known laws of science. Just out of interest, as I said, the word translated wormwood means bitterness. In the Old Testament, it was synonymous with sorrow, 
synonymous with great calamity. You probably know who used it the most. That would be Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. He loved to use wormwood. He often used it. Amos used it. Moses warned that idolatry would bring sorrow to Israel like a root producing wormwood. Even Solomon in his, uh, in his book wrote that immorality might seem pleasant but at the end it produces bitterness like wormwood. So all the fresh water, a third of the fresh water turned to bitterness. If the ecologists, uh, ecologists are worried about the deadly consequences of water pollution today then they're going to have a, a riot with the third trumpet. The fourth angel sounded in verse 12 and a third of the sun and a third of the moon and a third of the stars were struck so that a third of them would be darkened and the day would not shine for a third of it and the night in the same way. The first three judgments affected only a third part of the land and waters but this, even though it's only a third, it affects the entire world. Of course it gets to the very source of Earth's life and energy, the sun. One third less sunlight, one third less energy available to support all life systems of man and nature. This is a, a, a climate change on steroids. A third of light. You might remember the, the ninth plague in Egypt, the Lord darkened the place uh, just over Egypt, not over Goshen, but just over Egypt for three days. If he can do that and just isolate one place, then this is a piece of cake. But think of the, the temperature changes, how it will affect human health and food growth. I just want to add here that it, it seems like this is a, a, a temporary judgment too because we're going to see that the fourth bold judgment in Revelation 16, it actually reverses this as the sun will become so intensified that it scorches the land, it scorches the people. So the Lord's going to reverse it in the bold judgment. Then at the close of the tribulation, we're going to see the sun and the moon be darkened again to announce the Saviour's return. So the Lord changes it. The prophet Joel said, Blow ye the trumpet in Zion, for the day of the Lord cometh, a day of darkness and of gloominess. So what have we got out of these things? Just to, to summarise, just the fact that the main thing is a third. It's mentioned, third, third, third. We can only contemplate how that will will destroy the, the, the crops and famine will be abound and the smell of the sea and everything. But what we need to get out of it is the reason. And the reason is that God is showing his strength, his power to be able to allow the 144,000 Jews to go throughout the earth evangelising and sharing the gospel. But if they weren't bad enough, at this point a remarkable messenger appears in the sky proclaiming three woes. Verse 13, Then I looked and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, 
saying with a loud voice, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Now some Bibles, some of your Bibles might have angel instead of eagle. Can't say for sure, but I believe some of the Greek manuscripts give a better case for eagle. But either way, it would certainly get people's attention, whether it be an eagle or an angel. So we don't really know that, but what we do know for certain, and I love the certainty, is that three woes refer to judgments yet to come. To put it in vernacular, it's like he's saying, if you think that's been terrible, you just wait. Worse is yet to come. You've just been through all those thirds and you're being told There's the worst is yet to come. Woe to you. Why is it woe to the people? Well, the four trumpets really are largely concerned with nature. Yes, a lot of people die. What is yet to come is judgment upon those who dwell on the earth is how it's put in the scripture. So who are those who dwell on the earth? Well, it's an interesting phrase. It's found 12 times in Revelation and it means much more than just people who live on the earth because that's where all living people live, is on the earth. So the fact is those who dwell on the earth refers to a kind of people. And we'll see that as it continues, as we use it in uh, Revelation. But basically those who live for the earth, those who uh, things of the earth belong to them, those who are entrenched on the earth. The scripture tells us that we're sojourners on this earth as born again believers. We're to keep our eyes in glory, where our inheritance is. Where our heart is, where, where our inheritance is, that's where our heart is. Our heart is in heaven. We are citizens in heaven. But those who dwell on the earth are citizens of the earth. We're going to see later in this book that earth dwellers, those who dwell on the earth, are referred to as those who are not born again. Therefore the three woes are for those who are not born again. Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell, who live, who want to stay on the earth because of the remaining blast of the trumpet. And so if you think what we just read in chapter 8 is bad, then we haven't seen anything yet. We're going to see demonic and horrible stuff that begins to happen in chapter 9. It's going to make the hairs on the back of your, your neck stand up. You're going to see things that seem almost inhuman. Woe, woe, woe. I wonder if you can imagine yourself, and hopefully this doesn't apply to anyone here, but I wonder if you can imagine yourself, try, or try to imagine yourself living in that day and seeing all these things happening. The earth being scorched, scorched and burnt. Something like a mountain blazing with fire falling from heaven. Fresh water turning bitter, the sea turning into blood. And through all of this, how could you not begin to at least think, I think God's doing something here. And even if you don't believe in God, 
you must get to the point where you begin to realise there's a greater power behind this that I just don't understand. How could anyone just deny that this is something far beyond human comprehension? Now, I don't know where everybody here are with your relationship with the Lord. I don't know your hearts, but God does. And so God knows your hearts. I don't know where you are with your relationship. But let me tell you, there's no time like the present to get your heart right with the Lord. And why do I say that? Because as we go through this book, there's a reason why God's giving us a glimpse of these things. And what is that reason? To make us ready. So that no one will have to go through what I've been talking about this morning. So that we'd all be prepared in advance and be taken in the rapture before all this begins. I hope you never have to sing that song, I wish we'd all been ready. Are you ready? How are you to get ready? How are you to prepare yourself so that you shall not go through this? And the simple answer is, as we met around the communion table, by accepting Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour. That is the only way to avoid either dying now and going to the great lake of fire or go through this tribulation, then go to the great lake of fire. The only way to avoid that is through Jesus Christ. And so if you're not a born-again believer here this morning, I ask you, what will it take to begin to move your own heart from a place of stubborn resistance and rebellion against God to a place of full surrender to God? What's it going to take? I don't say these things to scare you into the kingdom. The scripture is not here to scare you into the kingdom. All I'm saying is the reality is these things are coming. And God is giving you a glimpse so that you might be ready. See, God has always been doing things to get our attention so that we finally surrender to him. He's always trying to get your attention. But there's coming a time of tribulation, a time that is unparalleled in human history, and this will be his final wake-up call to a dying world. But you can avoid it. You can come now and receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour and then you will be ready. And you won't have to sing that song as you're going through the tribulation, which by the way could start tomorrow, could start the next day, could start a year from now. I have no idea. But I don't want you to be singing. I wish we'd been ready. Are you ready? All there is, all you have to do is surrender your life to Jesus Christ because he paid the price of your sin at the cross so you wouldn't have to go through it. Let's bow together in prayer. Father, we want to thank you for the joy of reading your word. 
Sometimes it's not joyful to read it, but Lord, we can rejoice in the knowledge that as born-again believers, as your children, as your, uh, as your sons and daughters, Father, we are kept from your wrath. And we are so thankful and grateful and we give you all the praise and all the glory. And we look forward to that time when your son will come to take his church to be with him and we will be with him forever. But Lord, there may be people here this morning whom you know that have never taken that step, who aren't ready. Father, I pray that you would draw them to yourself, that you would work in your in their lives, that the Holy Spirit would draw them, that, Father, you would make them so uncomfortable until they at least ask questions. Lord, I thank you for this reminder that things are not always going to be pretty on this earth. But I also thank you for the reminder through the uh, table that we've shared, the communion table that the reason most people are going there is because of sin or all people and Father we have been saved from that through your son's shed blood. And so we give thanks. I pray Father that you would just work in people's lives to encourage us as believers and to admonish those who are unbelievers. And Father, I ask it in and through the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.